You're listening to Carried Interest, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. Carried Interest invites you to the conversations with experienced independent sponsors and professionals who employ the independent sponsor model. Join Greg, Jeff, and Rebecca as they explore middle market private equity M&A to provide you with timely insights and relevant takeaways. Hi, this is Greg Hover, one of your co-hosts. Before we jump into this inaugural episode of Carried Interest, want to give you a quick preview of the topics we're going to discuss. First, we're going to have my partners, Jeff Brooker and Rebecca Brophy, join me for a quick introduction to our practices and some of the goals and topics that we're going to cover generally on this podcast moving forward. After that, we're going to be joined by my partner, Brian Billica, to discuss some recent trends in PPP loan program and other related government stimulus. So if any of those are particular interest, feel free to take a look at the show notes and jump directly to those. Otherwise, here's the introductory segment with myself and my partners, Jeff Brooker and Rebecca Brophy. This is the inaugural podcast of Carried Interest. We're excited about this. So McGuire Woods, as a law firm, we cover lots of different areas. We have litigators regulatory lawyers and a large corporate practice, offices all over the country and 1,100 lawyers total. Our private equity group in particular, of which I'm a member and, and Jeff and Rebecca, we focus quite a bit on independent sponsor work and the independent sponsor community as a niche area. And, and over the years, with the help of lawyers like John Finger, David McLean, those on this podcast and others, we like to think we've built a pretty nice niche in this area. Some of the initiatives that we have here at McGuire Woods, other than this new podcast, include our, our annual independent sponsor conference, which last year had over 800 guests. And through networking meetings there, we made, I believe, over 4,000 connections there. We also have regular regional roundtables in cities throughout the country including cities where we have offices like Chicago, where I'm at, Dallas, where Jeff sits, and, and Raleigh, where Rebecca sits, but also other cities like Miami, Boston, et cetera, where we meet regularly with independent sponsors. We're happy to be putting together this podcast as another way to really keep the conversation going among the independent sponsor community. There are several goals of this podcast. Again, building community, Continuing the conversation is first and foremost. We're going to try to have guests on a monthly basis on this podcast, whether those guests are independent sponsors who can share their story and their experience with our listeners, or whether it's other types of deal professionals, you know, investment bankers, accountants, things like that. I know it uh, sounds thrilling to lawyers and accountants chatting on a podcast. We're going to try to keep it lively. And that's the goal. You can find all of our information for myself, for Jeff and Rebecca in the show notes. And so if you ever do have an idea, if anyone has an idea about a topic they'd like to cover, just let us know. So with that, my name is Greg Hover. I'm an M&A lawyer here at McGuire Woods. I sit in the Chicago office. A little bit about myself and why I enjoy you know, working with independent sponsors Mergers and acquisitions is a very interesting area of law, I think. Working through purchase agreements, diligencing companies, learning about companies that you're acquiring, things of that nature. You know, you could spend a career doing just just nuts and bolts M&A, 
as I'll call it. What's interesting about working with independent sponsors is that you've also got the whole piece of the equation regarding finding the capital and negotiating and documenting the business deal that changes on every transaction with respect to how the independent sponsor gets their economics. And I find that added layer of complexity to be really interesting. On a personal note, I just love using my brain every day. I'm very lucky to have a job where I can do that. And with independent sponsor deals, you you use your brain more than the average transaction. You're probably um, a little more blood, sweat, and tears as well. The other reason I like working on independent sponsor deals is sort of, I call it the dynamic of threading the needle, helping, you know, while independent sponsors are, are really out there threading the needle, building the relationship with the target company, finding equity, and really orchestrating how everything is going to fit together, us lawyers are, are right alongside there. And, and whether it's sort of staging out the due diligence and the financing and those things, it's very strategic and, again, adds good types of complexity to my practice. And then before I let my other co-hosts give an introduction to themselves, just some things about me personally. While I sit in the Chicago office, I live in the north suburbs of Chicago, so I, I practice law from Wilmette, Illinois. Kelly is also working from home with me as well, and we have two, two little daughters, Louise and Clara, both under four. So we are having lots of fun. And I'll round out by saying, you know, in my free time, I like to play kind of suburban sports like golf and paddle, which if you're not from the city of Chicago, you may not know what that is, but it's basically a winter sport where you uh, essentially tennis and you knock the ball around and you play it off screen. And anyways, that's kind of what occupies me when I'm not practicing law. Thanks, Greg. This is Rebecca Brophy. I am a partner in the Raleigh office of McGuire Woods. I practice in mergers and acquisitions primarily. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and spent the first about 10 years of my legal career practicing in California before moving back to North Carolina and now practice in Raleigh, um, although I spend quite a bit of time in our Charlotte office as well. I really enjoy working in M&A generally because I feel like it's such an exciting way to help quarterback and move different people with different goals to an oftentimes just mutually beneficial outcome that I find to be very fulfilling. I also love just the huge amount of creative and intelligent people that are drawn towards this field and hardworking people. And that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy working with independent sponsors. They're some of the biggest hustlers that I've run across over the course of my career over 15 years working in an M&A at large law firm. And I enjoy watching how nimble independent sponsors are in working with so many different people and so many different capital providers and companies and lawyers and accountants and sellers and trying to work together to make a deal happen that works out and is beneficial for everyone. It's just a very fun and thrilling and interesting process to be a part of. And I enjoy very much assisting in that and being a sounding board for that process. In terms of just a few personal facts for me beyond what I shared a bit earlier, 
like Greg, I have two children, both boys. They're they're quite a bit older. So right now I'm currently having this thrilling opportunity to homeschool a third and fifth grader while being a full-time attorney. And like Greg, my hobbies are largely athletic related. They used to be going to boot camps and now it's become Peloton since we're all trying to exercise more at home. <laughs> Turn it over to Jeff. Jeff Brooker. I'm a partner in our Dallas, Texas office. I've been practicing M&A primarily for private equity clients for about 15 years now. I'm originally, well, I'm in Texas now. I'm originally from the Northeast, went to school at Cornell and then law school at Boston University, practiced in New York and Boston for a while before coming down to Dallas because it's been almost seven years now. Time really flies. So I met my wife, who is a Texas A&M Aggie alumnus up in New York about 10 years ago or so. And, and finally, uh, after several years, she prevailed upon me to, to try out the sun and the, the strange world of Texas for a, a Northeasterner who had never been down here. But it's, it's been good. Do, do, the, do, you wear a, do you wear a cowboy hat? <laughs> no, but I do own cowboy boots, I'm afraid to admit, although I only wear them when riding a horse, which is something that my wife has gotten me into occasionally. Nice. <laughs> and so I've been working with private equity clients for quite a while now, and increasingly over the last five years, as independent sponsors have become a bigger and bigger part of our practice here at McGuire Wood, have been doing more and more independent sponsor work to the point now where it represents a pretty meaningful part of my overall practice. And I really do enjoy working with them. It requires a lot of creativity to solve problems kind of quickly and efficiently and problems that we don't always run into when we have funded clients. So it does keep us nimble and on our toes. And I've got a place in my heart for the little guy being from Buffalo and a lot of times the independent sponsor really does occupy that role of being, being the underdog in, in the private equity world. I definitely enjoy rooting for those guys and feel whether the, the independent sponsor is or is not truly an underdog. I find that given the small teams and the, the close work that we have with them, it's an opportunity to form really personal relationships. And, and those folks tend to be very thankful for all the things that we're able to, to do for them. And, and so I, I just, I really do enjoy the dynamic of working with them. Awesome. So we were talking before this about maybe sharing some recent war stories from the last couple of months on M&A transactions, especially involving independent sponsors. Jeff, anything come to mind? Sure. Yeah. I've got a couple of recent transactions over the past a couple of years where I think folks have gotten burned that could be lessons learned. So one of them, it was really in, in our economics, the independent sponsor you know, went forward without getting us involved at the LOI stage. And they had agreed, kind of unbeknownst to me, had agreed to a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet that set forth the way the economics were going to work. So it really had detailed waterfall calculations. They had also agreed 
kind of separately, but also independently without us on a letter of intent that set forth what looked to be a pretty customary independent sponsor style waterfall for, for the carry economics until we really got into the weeds on drafting the document, didn't really realize that the LOI didn't really reflect the economic deal that the independent sponsor had struck with their capital provider. It actually was the waterfall that reflected the business deal, but the waterfall was inconsistent with the LOI, and we had been trying to draft to the LOI. And so we really did spin our wheels kind of with a bunch of changes trying to draft to an LOI that didn't reflect the business deal. And then the LOI was not what I think was not as advantageous to the independent sponsor as a traditional carry would have been. And so, you know, we kind of had, it was a bit of a, a mashup where I think if they had been, if they'd involved us at an earlier stage, we certainly could have had a more efficient documentation process. And I like to think that we might have been able to get them to a better place on the economics themselves. I think the lesson there is, you know, don't try to do this by yourself. We are here. We are happy to help. We frequently do letters of intent off the clock in order to make sure that we are, our independent sponsors are, are getting the guidance they need and start the deal off on the right foot. I understand we can't represent everyone and some folks have counsel that they like and, and are going to work with. And that's, that's perfectly fine. So I, I would say whoever is your counsel, make sure you've got competent M&A counsel who is able to do this work and you, and you get them involved early because you really can involve, you can implicate some pretty complex terms that can get really mashed up and create some problems in your deal. And this, I don't think that the independent sponsor quite realized how much they were losing relative to a regular deal. And when we pointed it out, it really did get to a point where they thought about walking away from the deal on their capital provider. And that could have, I think, been avoided, or at least expectations could have been level set at an early stage if we would have been there to to make sure everybody was on the same page. Was that more, Jeff, was the bad taste in the mouth more because of the disconnect between the Excel and the LOI or, or more because they just didn't have a good handle on what is a, what's a market deal, how the deals, how the carries typically work? I think both, honestly. I think there was not quite the level of understanding of what that waterfall was going to mean, especially going forward when you started to some dilution in it. That was a feature of kind of the way this was structured. But also I think that the it not being structured in a conventional way made it significantly more complex. I think the disconnect was in part as well a, a difference in expectations. And when we explained to them kind of what a conventional deal looked like, there was a I think a a consideration of of trying to go back to the market and getting a deal that was more conventional and frankly more favorable for the sponsor. 
Jeff, do you want to launch well, into what is a more conventional deal in terms of economics for independent sponsors? Yeah, sure. There's really three components to a conventional independent sponsor deal. So the first bucket of economics for the independent sponsor is the closing fee. And so that is usually a percentage of the enterprise value of the deal that is paid to the independent sponsor at closing. It's kind of like a finder's fee. And that is usually, you know, it roughly one or two percent of enterprise value. The second bucket is an ongoing management fee. And that management fee is usually based on EBITDA. And usually it's, you know, something in the neighborhood of two to five percent of ongoing EBITDA. And that'll be paid on a quarterly or annual basis typically in the future. That management fee will often have a floor and or a ceiling. And so if the company gets, if the EBITDA is too low or too high relative to what the range that is expected, it, it will usually, there will be a, a cap to keep it within that range. And then the carry is typically the biggest piece of independent sponsor economics. And that is the independent sponsor gets a percentage of the profit that would otherwise be paid to the capital provider. That carry will typically take the form of a series of hurdles with steps based on IRR and or multiple of invested capital. And at each set of hurdles, the carry percentage will be higher. And then sometimes there will also be a catch-up back to dollar one or to an earlier hurdle where the, the independent sponsor can gain incremental economics that will look back. And so there's a variety of ways to structure the carry. There's not really as congealed a kind of mar- set of market expectations around the carry as there is around the closing fee and the, the ongoing management fee. Right. Just a quick plug there, Jeff. One of our initiatives here at McGuire Woods is to prepare a, a market study of, of what's market going through all of those different terms for, for independent sponsor deals. We had an iteration of this two or so years ago, but over the next couple of months, we're going to be collecting as much data as we can and, and trying to put together you know, what is market. But to your last point, totally agree that on the promote, there's not really a set market as far as 2.5 times MOIC up to, you know, up to whatever number. I think a lot of that goes back to the types of capital writers that work with independent sponsors, right? It's family offices, from family offices to mass equity funds to traditional control buyout funds. And they're all going to have, depending on the returns they need to provide to their investors or their constituents, that, that will weigh heavily on what they're able to give the independent sponsor. So that's a super helpful rundown. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I would add, Greg, is that there's so many factors that go into calculating what the appropriate carry is, right? The kind of company, you know, what is what is a market multiple in that industry? What 
did the independent sponsor manage to lock that company down for in terms of, of pricing? And so if the independent sponsor was able to lock down a deal at 6x EBITDA when really market would have been 8x EBITDA, well, now you've got 2x to play with for the independent sponsor to extract economics through the carry. Whereas if the independent sponsor gets a deal that you know the market would have valued at 8x and the independent sponsor gets it locked down at, at 8x, that's a much more limited window for him to take economics in terms of carry because every dollar is really cutting in to the, the dollars that the capital provider would otherwise get in a much more meaningful way there. And so folks ask us all the time, what is the right amount of carry that we should ask for? And it, it's really, it's a hard answer. We'll do a, a future episode on really getting into the weeds on you know, how to think about that and what to ask for and what, to the extent that we can generalize market, what does that look like? For sure. This conversation leads me to to my recent war story that I wanted to share as well, actually. And it's similar to yours, Jeff. But as you think about the promote and what the numerical hurdles are, 3X, 4X, et cetera, one thing that I've seen and maybe even see it on more deals than not is while you're thinking about you know, what is three is three X the right number versus three point five X at the different stages, there are very critical components that are not ironed out as people are thinking about that that have much greater effect than like whether it's three point five or three point oh. But for example, tax distributions, if you're gonna be using a flow through partnership to invest along with your capital writers, if you're using a flow through, you're gonna need tax distributions along the way as the business has income and those will be distributed, right? And the question is, do those distributions during the hold period count towards your MOIC hurdles? And that is something that's often left to the definitive documents. If you at the LOI stage are are trying to iron out and decide between capital partners, you know, hopefully you have the luxury of a competitive deal where you can compare different offers. But agreeing to numbers such as three or four X without knowing whether tax distributions count towards those hurdles, it's not going to be accurate. And you could you could have some surprises. I mean, usually the parties are able to work through it and I wouldn't call it a, a deal killer and, and people come around to different philosophies as they're working with their capital providers. But again, if, if you're gonna model things out, you, you should really know all the variables and if you have bargaining power at that LOI stage with multiple offers, that's that's the time to really hammer out how are we going to treat tax distributions. Another related point as well is just understanding, again, if you're thinking about two or three offers from capital providers, you know, what's what's the debt structure going to be like on this business? It's a much different proposition if a typical control buyout fund is going to put quite a bit of leverage on the business. How does that impact return of capital versus if there's no debt at all? It's not as common to drill down specifically on on the levels of debt at the LOI stage, but conversations worth having. So that's a recent, kind of a recent war story and, and something for people to think about. Rebecca, wanted to turn it over to you if you'd like to talk about some more stories, et cetera. 
Yeah, thanks, Greg. Thanks, Jeff. So I'm going to just give a, a really basic war story that applies heavily to independent sponsors, but also to, to certain other people playing in this field. And it, it's something I actually saw just two weeks ago, but have seen it go horribly awry in the past. We've been giving some nice examples of situations where independent sponsors have walked down companies at really great even evaluations and or where there's multiple potential capital providers. One of the things that we highly recommend doing in advance of talking to any capital providers, if you have a lockdown company as independent sponsor, is to make sure that your NDA includes non-circumvention language, which just effectively means that this deal can't go forward with this potential capital source without the independent sponsor being involved. And it's it's actually fairly shocking to me to see how few of independent sponsor NDA forms that might have been put together without an attorney's overview or perhaps without an attorney's overview who really understands this market don't contain that very basic provision. And I've seen it gone horribly awry once in my career, and that's once is enough for that. So that's just a word of warning. And to Jeff's point earlier, if you are working with McGuire Woods, doing something basic like checking your NDA to make sure that it's got the right provisions is something that we're happy to do on the front end and oftentimes really off the books. Yeah, and I would say I've, I've seen both. I know that neither of those was my worst story here, but I have seen both of those things, each of them within the last year and probably several times when, when we're not involved. Things just sometimes slip through the cracks on on both those. It's pretty rare for folks to address the tax distribution point at the LOI, but I do think it's important. And then I've got a client that got burned pretty badly on not having a non-circumvent not all that long ago. So we definitely caution on both those fronts. Yeah, yeah. Last a related point on on NDAs that I've seen recently. I, I think. Maybe it's a trend, but more independent sponsors getting involved in competitive auction processes where sponsors are signing up to NDAs and looking at lots of deals. You can argue whether that's a great philosophy to be getting involved in super competitive deals for an independent sponsor. That's a separate question. But realize what you're signing up to when you do sign up to an NDA in, in someone's process, like with an investment bank. The example being that they typically restrict the distribution of information to, to other parties, including potential investors. So you're going to have to have some difficult conversations at the outset when, when you strike that provision and say, no, I actually have a, you know, a trusted group of limited partners or affiliates or co-investors that I'm going to need to share this information with. You can get into a sticky situation if all of a sudden the investment banker gets wind that their deck has been shared with some parties that they didn't think it was going to be shared with. And so, again, finding the balance of McGuire Woods or other lawyers don't need to mark up every NDA, but you know, just taking a look and understanding what you're signing up to is, is important. Those are some good war stories. For our next segment, our guest is Brian Billica. Brian is a partner with me in the Chicago office of McGuire Woods. He practices in the private equity group. Brian, you want to get 
give a little bit of a background about yourself and your practice? Sure. Thanks, Greg. As you mentioned, I'm in Chicago down the hall from you. I do the majority of my work on the fund formation, institutional investor investment funds space. That includes a niche practice with SPIC funds in which I'm dealing with the SBA on a consistent basis, which has meant for the last 10 or so months, I have been intimately involved with the PPP process, mostly on the borrower side specifically with respect to portfolio companies of SBIC funds and have been helping counsel them as sort of they try to navigate with their portfolio companies through the application and and forgiveness process. But otherwise, I work with non-SBIC fund institutional investor, family office clients who who are writing co-investment checks, who are backing independent sponsors, who are writing anchor LP checks into private equity funds. That's been the bulk of my practice. Great. Glad you could join. We wanted to have you on the podcast because, like you said, I know that you've been in the weeds on the PPP program for the last year or so and thought it would be helpful as we sit here in Q1 2021, if you could just give a high-level update as far as where we are with additional expansions of the PPP program, that would be great. Sure. So Congress approved a second round of PPP funding. It's a smaller round than the first one. Maximum loan size is $2 million. There have been some improvements and they've they've narrowed the scope to who can apply targeting smaller companies, but the affiliation exceptions still apply. So SBIC funds specifically can still take advantage of, of that affiliation exception. But from a very high level, the entity, the businesses that are going to be eligible are going to have less than 300 employees and can demonstrate at least a 25% reduction in gross receipts on a quarter over quarter basis between comparable quarters in 2019 and 2020. There's some other features to the program that that are more nuanced, but from a high level, that's kind of where PPP 2.0 is. From an overall perspective on the program, Forgiveness applications for round one are starting to get processed, and that's important because if you've got an unresolved PPP loan from round one, you'll be able to apply for round two, but it will not be dispersed until your first loan is forgiven or partially forgiven. And if you're ineligible completely, you won't be eligible for round two. And so as we start to see more and more of the forgiveness applications process for round one, sort of frees up those those companies to go ahead and get their PPP round two money. Got it. Got it. I, I know that the with respect to the initial round, I think the, the granting of the loans seem to move relatively quickly, all things considered. And then the you know the forgiveness process with respect to the loans has has lagged and has has been slower. Is the timing of either one of those components going to be quicker or more efficient in this next round, or should we expect about the same process from a timing perspective? Yeah. So on the forgiveness piece, we're we're seeing most of the delays certainly on the $2 million plus side, so PPP loans that were for $2 million and above that are subject to the mandatory review. And then in the forgiveness process, the SBA came out with a Form 3509 that was an additional questionnaire to support the why you need needed the PPP loan to begin with and, and why it should be forgivable. 
And so we're seeing that process lag specifically. And so if you're a larger borrower that may be eligible for round two, you're sort of put in a, in a position where you're waiting for a resolution on round one, and that process is moving very slowly, but you want to get in the queue for round two. So we recommend that you get in the queue. It may take a while for the loan to ultimately get dispersed, but we're not really seeing a ton of movement there. In terms of the application process for round two compared to round one, I think there's more certainty. Obviously, their improvements have been made to the process. Second time to do anything, mm-hmm. you're better at it. We are seeing anecdotally fewer lenders in the market for PPP round two. So just because you're able to go to a particular bank or lender for the first time, they may not be participating in, in round two. Why do you think that is? Did they not really make any money off of this program? It wasn't designed to be a money-making program to begin with. There was pressure, I think, on a lot of the banks initially. Again, this is just sort of what, what we've seen to participate because it allowed capital to flow to their borrowers, which certainly secured their, their credits out there. And good now business. this, yeah, it's good, good business. So as a favor to those folks, as well as being a good business practice when you're in, in the business of lending to companies that may be troubled as a result of the pandemic, it made sense. And there's, I think, less of that this time where you've got fewer companies eligible to apply, some businesses probably on more solid footing. The business case probably just isn't as strong. It also, I suspect, took a lot of resources away from the more traditional banking business in a way that was less productive. Right. That makes sense. So I know back in the summer when this program was rolling out, and this is a topic that will be important to our listeners, private equity professionals, the affiliation rule that came out with respect to this program, it was kind of a difficult judgment call that a lot of our private equity and independent sponsor clients had to make as far as whether they fit within the boundaries of of someone that can take these loans. Is that an aspect of the program that, that now has more clarity? And, you know, what are you seeing private equity sponsors and independent sponsors do with respect to these loans? So all the affiliation rules still apply. So to the exceptions to the affiliation rules, most notably for our clients or the exception for SBIC funds, what's developed isn't necessarily a ton of certainty around what definitely works because it's been vetted and approved by SBA, but rather kind of what the market approach has been in terms of what is being done in good faith to apply. And to that extent, you know, if there's if you've got an affiliation issue and you're private equity owned and you don't have an exception that's applicable to you, should you want to restructure the company to break the affiliation, you know, it has to be a real restructuring, a real relinquishing of control. And it can't just flip back as soon as you get the PPP loan or as soon as you get the PPP loan forgiven. There are companies that have gone down that pathway because it was seen as as life or death. I don't know that there's as many of those out there today as there were back in March, but to the extent that that is something that's being considered, we're able to get that done. You make the necessary certifications on affiliation and you can move forward in, in applying for round two in good faith. But otherwise, you know, not much has changed. The affiliation rules are what they are. It's a sliding scale totality of the circumstances. 
review, there are some bright line tests where the presumption of affiliation cannot be rebutted. And then there are others where it's, it's a little bit more in the, in the gray area. So it's usually a fact-based analysis, which means you probably have to call us, which I'm sure is not the news that all the listeners want to hear, but it's pretty specific. And, and we spend a good amount of time with, with each one of our clients trying to work through the specifics of each borrower and kind of running it through the affiliate, the SBA's affiliation test. Got it. I also recall when we were thinking about these affiliation rules and this program was coming out, sort of the publicity, the social risk that private equity firms might face, maybe the the New York Times risk. I mean, based on my casual observation, it, it did look like the Wall Street Journals of the world did pick up on some of these private equity firms taking advantage of the PPP loans, sometimes within the letter of the law, but still kind of getting that publicity. Did you, you know, have any experience in that? Do you, any observations from your perspective on that? There was certainly that, that headline risk for some of the larger groups where you could have a group of portfolio companies take down a, a really significant portion of PPP money there were people that just kind of ignored the backlash and there were people that were very sensitive to it. The piece that I noticed and probably didn't focus as much on is the local newspapers digging. So the the PPP recipients are public information and the local newspapers digging to find out who locally received PPP loans um, and then, and then writing a story about it. That was one where, you know, even if you take the view that, look, we're a lower middle market private equity fund, lower middle market PE-backed business, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, don't, they don't care about us. It may be true, but the local paper may, may take a different view, and, and that has different consequences depending on the, the business you're in and how reliant you are on sort of the local population for business. And so that can affect companies very differently, and, and it's certainly worth a, a consideration in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, definitely worth consideration. So one final question, and, and we don't need to go into the mechanics of, of what each M&A transaction would look like, but you know, for our listeners who are M&A deal professionals, my general sense is that if you compare now to eight months ago, the M&A process has gotten a lot smoother because of more guidance. Is that your general sense? And then are there still areas where you can have some pitfalls? Yeah. So in October, the SBA released a procedural notice on how to deal with changes in ownership. It was relatively detailed and pretty straightforward, addressed both equity sales and, and asset sales. The gist of it is if you escrow, if you've used the PPP loan, applied for forgiveness and escrowed the amount of the PPP loan with the PPP lender in an interest-bearing account, then you you do not need SBA's consent to the change in ownership. You just need the consent of the PPP lender, which we have found to be much easier to get. And so the big holdup initially was trying to get SBA to consent and uneven application of those consent rules and sort of that sort of mucking things up. And, and that has now been, for all intents and purposes, solved you should really make every effort to abide by the guidelines in the procedural notice. In terms of pitfalls, honestly, the biggest pitfall we're seeing is 
where the PPP lender doesn't actually want to serve as the escrow agent, which means you're not te- you're not technically compliant with the procedural notice, and and that's just something that needs to be dealt with on a case by case basis because it, look, it it introduces some risk. You can always pay off the PPP loan at closing. For some folks, that's an acceptable outcome. For others, it's very much unacceptable, and so then it becomes a you know a risk allocation analysis and sort of negotiation. Got it. Got it. But yeah, I mean, for for people trying to close deals like us, it feels like we're in a much better place. I recall in the fall, yeah, there was a concern whether you should be even closing deals until we get, we got more guidance from the SDA. So, well, great, Brian. This has been super informative. Really appreciate your insights. Yeah, happy to help. Any if anybody has questions, feel free to reach out to your McGuire Woods contact or me directly or Greg directly, and we're happy to route questions, concerns to to the appropriate person. Great. Well, thanks again to Brian for his time. This is Greg Hover of the Carried Interest Podcast, and I'm McGuire Woods. We'll look forward to the next one. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Carried Interest, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. To learn more about today's discussion and our commitment to the independent sponsor community, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.